0: And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying. They were being given in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planning, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They will maintain the outward appearance of godliness, but they have repudiated its power. Lord Jesus, you told us that just as in the days of Noah and the days of Lot, people carried on life as if nothing was going to happen, as if judgment would never fall, then instantly in a moment's time it came. And you reminded us that your coming will be like the days of Noah that were days filled with violence and moral impropriety. That your coming would be like the days of Lot, filled with days of moral and sexual perversion. Help us, our Father, to be alert in this day. We know at the end of the age the church will become colder and colder and more lukewarm, which gives the freedom for sin to spread. And while we cannot control everyone in the body of Christ, we know, our Father, we can control our own hearts. So we bow humbly in your presence today. Thank you for your word, a lamp unto our feet, a light to our path. Thank you that you said we were born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable seed through the living and abiding word. Thank you that by the preaching of the word of God, the foolishness of preaching, as Paul calls it, you opened our dead hearts up to the wonder and truth of the gospel. Lord Jesus, you said, sanctify them in the truth, thy word is truth. And so, Holy Spirit of God, we ask that you would take the book that you inspired and you would bring it close to our hearts and minds today, that we would not only hear, but we would apply. I know with you I can do everything, so I ask today in my weakness you would give me strength, that you would fill me and empower me and use me for the glory of Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen. Open your Bibles with you this morning, James chapter 4. If you are joining us for the first time, we've been working our way chapter by chapter through this short little book. It's only 108 verses, and we want to pick up where we left off before Easter. The Epistle of James, it's written by a, a very practical man. He gives us a practical letter because he wants to take the instruction he gives and put it into our practice. If you remember, James is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, and for him, our creed needs to be translated into our conduct. Our doctrine needs to be transfused by duty, a changed life. He wants a belief that behaves. That's what pleases the Lord. And so he's continuing on that theme as we step into chapter 4, where he addresses three thorny issues in the Christian community— We're going to look at the very first one this morning in verses 1 through 10. And then in the weeks that will follow, we'll look at the next two. So first, he focuses on the problem of worldliness. Worldliness in the church, in the body of Christ. And he not only highlights the problem, he gives us the cure. So you can see if you're online, there's a note-taking outline that is available for you. The title of the sermon is Combating World worldliness. I want to begin by reading the first 10 verses. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scriptures, the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit, which he has made to dwell in us, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God, resist the devil, And he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Now, if you're using the note taking outline, we want to begin this morning where James starts with the cause of worldliness. This section opens up with the cause of worldliness. You say, what is worldliness? Very simple. Worldliness is living like the people of this world. It's living like a lost person. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you might want to put in the margin next to verse 1, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 to 3, Paul told the Christians there in that city that they were living carnal, worldly kinds of lives as exemplified in their behavior. He said, you're living like mere men. Let me read that section to you. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. He's speaking about what he did when he first went to Corinth. Paul, as the Acts of the Apostles tells us, planted that church. And so as brand-new believers, he didn't give them the heavy-duty meat truths of the faith, but just pure milk. Milk is used to describe the purity of God's Word, but sometimes, as in this context, it's used to describe the simple truths of God's Word. I fed you milk, not solid food, for you are not yet ready. In fact, you are still not ready, because you are still fleshly. For a sense, there is envy and strife among you. Are you not worldly and living like mere men? Yes, you are. They were worldly. They were living like unbelievers in the sense they were not getting along with one another. And some of the marks of worldliness are quarrels and envy and strife. Those are classic symptoms. Some of them were suing one another. Some of them were fighting in church. Some of them even abused the Lord's table and got drunk in the process. Now, notice how James begins. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Like a parent who steps in the middle of two brothers who are having an argument, what's this all about? Who started this? How did you get into this mess to begin with? Now, if you'll notice, the word quarrels and conflicts are in the plural. You might want to circle the letter S at the end of those two words. It tells me that he's not looking at an isolated event, but at a chronic condition. In fact, the Greek New Testament translates the word quarrels as translating the word polemus. You can hear our word polemic in it, right? You know what a polemic is? It is an argument. It's a strong written verbal attack of sorts. And so the Greek word, though, for polemos refers to a war, not to an isolated battle, but to an entire war, a a big conflict. In addition, he translates his second word, rendered conflicts. And that's a word that refers to a particular battle, to a skirmish within a larger word. And so together, these two words are describing this ongoing state, this ongoing outburst of hostility that was seen in these various fellowships. Now, both of these words, being in the plural, reminds us, again, this was not an isolated event. This was an ongoing problem, but I want you to notice, too, that it happens Among you? Before we look at James' answer to the question that he asked in verse 1, we need to make sure we understand who the among you are in the context. If you turn back or look over on the page, depending on your typeset, in chapter 3 and in verse 1, he opens that chapter by saying, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren. And then here in chapter 4, if you look ahead to verse 11, he says, do not speak against one another, brethren. And so everything sandwiched between one and 4.11 are dealing with believers, genuine born-again brethren, a term reserved in the New Testament for those who have met Jesus Christ. Does that surprise you? It shouldn't, the psalmist said, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. He says that because it's not always true. True believers ought to love one another and live in harmony with one another. Now, when you study the New Testament, it quickly becomes apparent that the New Testament church was not a perfect church. We've already noted the Corinthian church where they were competing with each other, suing one another. Some were living sexually immoral. Of course, the difference between them and a pagan is their disobedience brought God's divine discipline because those who've been born again, whom he loves in that special way, he disciplines. You read the church of Galatia. They're practicing Christian cannibalism. Paul says they're biting and devouring one another. You read his letter to the church at Ephesus, which is one of the healthiest churches in all the New Testament. But they had some issues with spiritual unity. And don't forget, of course, the church at Philippi. In fact, let's turn to that. Let's go to Philippians chapter four. You're in James, so go to the left. Right after first and second Corinthians, you have a number of different books in the New Testament. Uh, You have those books that begin with the letter T, all the T books in the Bible, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, Titus, they're all found together. And it's followed by short little, four little short books, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, all right? Philippians chapter 4. Uh, one of my professors in seminary used to call this chapter the, the mental health chapter of the New Testament. And he had a lot of wise, exegetical advice on how to live well in our thought lives from this chapter. Look at verse 1. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. If you've been here for any period of time, we preach the Scripture verse by verse. And so we look for, among other things, key structural words. And so whenever you see the word therefore, you want to ask, what is the word therefore, therefore? Therefore. Well, in this case, it's a hinge verse that not only looks back, but it also looks ahead. It looks at what he has just said, and it's going to look forward at what he is about to say. And the connection is clear. The idea that our Christian citizenship is in heaven is the admonition in which to stand firm in the Lord. Someday your judging king is coming back and you will stand eyeball to eyeball with him and give an account at the judgment of the just. Verse two, I urge Iodia and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. So he references these two women, Iodia and Syntyche. And it's really a rather fascinating verse. If you read Paul, it's interesting not only what he does say, but sometimes what he does not say. And sometimes I wish, Paul, what did you have in mind? I wish I could dialogue with him. Maybe I'll have that opportunity since we have an eternity in heaven. Maybe Jesus will just explain the scriptures to us. But he does say a lot here that you do not want to miss. We know there's two women, two female names, Yodia and Syntyche, and we know that they're at odds with one another. And so they're admonished to live in harmony. If you have the NASB with marginal notes, it says literally in the margin to be of the same mind. But please understand to be of the same mind does not necessarily mean to be of the same opinion. And do not forget that in the first century, very few Christians owned a personal copy of scripture. You might even have just a page of scripture. And so Paul says to Timothy don't neglect the public reading of scripture. And so when this portion of scripture was read, you know these two ladies they had to have about fallen out of their seat. Now, you're nodding off in a service, and I know people nod often here. Sometimes it's medication, and I get it, and they'll apologize to me. But sometimes they were just up too late last night, not prioritizing the Lord's day. You know, a day biblically starts at sundown, and so a good way to prepare yourself for the Lord's day is to start with sundown. And so you've got this one woman over here and probably the other woman over here, and all of a sudden, like a lightning bolt, their names are read. I urge Yodiah and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. It had to be like a direct hit to them. When their names are read, he urges them. He's not threatening them. He is urging them in the Lord to get along. Now, it's interesting that the apostle Paul names names. Now, sometimes he doesn't, but very often he does. And there are some pastors who think they're somehow more spiritual because they never name names. But the New Testament actually gives us a pattern of naming names to protect the sheep. And in this particular case, he's not naming the names of false teachers, but actually two godly women. Uh, When you come to passages like 2 Corinthians, he doesn't name names there when he speaks of false prophets and false apostles. And rightly so, because under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's giving us some marks of those false teachers so that we think. He wants us to understand the the character, the conduct, and the creed of a false teacher so when they come along, we can spot them. And so in this case, he names Yodia and Now, it's interesting because he doesn't initially tell us what the problem is. We don't know specifically why it is that they were not getting along. But we do know, one, that they were believers. In fact, we know that because he admonishes them, notice, in the Lord. And then in verse 3, he tells us their names are written in the book of life. So while it's not clearly stated uh, what the problem is, we know there are believers in Christ, and we know, too, that they are charter members. You say, how do you know that? Because Paul refers to them as my fellow workers. Now, if you've read the Acts, you know that Paul was the one that God used to church, to plant the church in Philippi. And so they were there in that river. By that river, some of you have actually stood at that river with me. In Philippi and it was a magnificent place and the Jewish women met there now to have a synagogue you had to have under Jewish law at least ten men but there weren't any men just some women who were meeting by a river and that was important because they acknowledged as Jewish women the priority that God places on male leadership men and women are equal but while we are equal we have different roles In the home, the husband is called the head, and the woman is called to submit to her leadership, not to a dictator, but to someone who is to love her as Christ loved the church. Even so, in the church, men and women are equal, but God gives different roles. There are some things that only men can do in the church. There are some things only women can do. And so recognizing male leadership, and let me say parenthetically, if you're listening to me online and you have your family under a female pastor, you are doing them a great disservice, number one, because that woman is in disobedience. It doesn't matter that she says she was called. God didn't call her. God's will never contradicts His word. God said a woman can't serve as a pastor. Read First Timothy 2 and 3. I have a series of five messages on it, and I walk through every text in the Old and New Testament that people use to defend that position. But here were these women, and of course, we only know the names of one of these women from the Acts, and her name was Lydia. But these women were at the start. They were there when Paul started this church. They were his fellow workers, for he was not that long, of course, in Philippi. So somehow they got involved. They came to know the Lord in a personal way, but beyond their names, beyond the fact that they were believers, beyond the fact that they were founding members, so to speak, we don't know the specific problem. Nonetheless, we know it was not a doctrinal problem. You say, well, how do you know that? Because whenever there's a doctrinal problem in the Scripture, the Apostle Paul hits it head on, and he teaches us that principle in Second Thessalonians 3 and in Titus 3, that if someone has erred from sound doctrine, you rebuke him once, you rebuke him a second time, and then if he doesn't listen, he is to be put out. So we're not talking about doctrinal error. We're talking about some kind of petty differences, I've been in the ministry for 43 years, and in Bible-believing, Bible-teaching churches, rarely is there some kind of division in the church over a doctrinal issue. It is almost always some personality, some petty little issue where people are not getting along. Now, the name Yodia in Greek literally means sweet fragrance. And syntyche is a Greek word that means easy to get along with. (laughs) I think it's interesting. So here is sweet fragrance and easy to get along with, and they're having problems with each other. One of my professors at Dallas Seminary, Dr. Dwight Pentecost, he called them odious and soon touchy. In either case, how do you account for this problem? Well, people can get out of fellowship with the Lord, get their feelings hurt, In fact, in almost any local Bible-believing church, you have some real screwballs sometimes who come. Dr. Harry Ironside was asked, Dr. Ironside, he was a great preacher who lived in the first half of the 20th century, one of the great expository preachers of his day. He said, how do you account for all the nuts in the church? A pastor asked him this. He said, where there is light, there is bugs. (laughs) I think he's right. Now back here to James chapter 4, all right? James 4. I was just trying to remind you that the New Testament church was not a perfect church. And of course, whenever we have conflicts, inevitably we want to blame someone or something. When James asks this penetrating question, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? any answers with a rhetorical question. Children, a rhetorical question is a question that's asked that has an implied answer. Is it not, is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? Is that not the source? Yes, it is. The source is your pleasures, and your pleasures are rooted in two causes, your conflicts And your quarrels. So if you're taking notes, first put there on the outline, point A worldliness is rooted in illicit pleasures. Now, the word pleasures here in verse one is actually a neutral term. Its meaning is determined by its context. Sometimes it can refer to an evil pleasure, an evil desire, or sometimes it can refer to a good pleasure, a good desire. And, of course, here it's being used negatively. And he's putting great emphasis on your pleasures. He's talking about a person who wants to do what they want to do versus what God would have them to do. In one word, they are selfish. They are self-centered. I want what I want when I want it. And life doesn't work that way. Such thinking, whether it's in your home or your church, only creates division. And so he says in verse 2, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. Now the word lust in Greek can be used, again, negatively, or can be used positively. It's determined by the context. And the word, by the way, just means a strong desire. People often associate it with sex. It can refer to sexual lust. There is a lust for food that some people have, the scripture says. And sometimes there's a lust for a position that someone might want in the church that they're not qualified to fill. It's used in all kinds of different contexts. And sometimes, as we'll see before we're finished, it's used positively. It just means a strong Desire. Now, when lost people have a super strong desire and they're incredibly selfish and self-centered and they want their way and they don't get it, sometimes they will murder. They will express their desire through murder. Now, Paul is not using it that way any more than James or Jesus. They're using it figuratively. They're using it in this grammatical context in a figurative sense. Think your way through this for a moment. I don't think he's envisioning someone coming to church with a sword and someone with whom they disagree with, they run them through, much less taking a gun in our day and killing someone. He's describing here an attitude of the heart. And there are many clues that tell you that right off. Right off, it's what we call in Greek a present active indicative. In other words, it doesn't refer to a completed action like you pull the trigger. He's describing an ongoing spirit of murder, ongoing behavior, that there's this outward action that is driven by this inward desire. Jesus spoke in these terms as well. He said, yes, people can commit physical adultery, but he also said that people can commit spiritual adultery. If a man looks at a woman to lust at her, he has committed adultery in his heart. And so it is with murder. He said, you've heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. In 1 John 3.15, John uses it figuratively. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And now James is using it that way within the body of Christ. And so a person can kill with their thoughts. They can assassinate someone else's character with their words. Now mark the progression. You lust, that is you have this strong, self-centered desire, and when you don't get your own way in a figurative sense, you murder. And James says, this is all rooted in your pleasures. Now, as a pastor, uh, I have to make a lot of major decisions, not just for my own life, sometimes for my family, and sometimes for this church at large. And one of the verses that has really helped me in making decisions that I would stay in the will of God is Psalm 37.4. In fact, why don't you turn there? The Psalms, if you're new to the Bible, they're about dead center. So just find the middle of your Bible. You'll probably be in Psalms, unless you have some big encyclopedia in the back, and go to Psalm 37 and verse 4, and I'll show you in a moment how it's connected to what we're discussing here in James. There are some areas of life that I don't really even have to pray about that I don't have to debate whether or not I'm going to do it because God has said specifically what He wants us to do. One lady years ago came to me and she said, God has called me to divorce my husband in order to marry this man that I'm living with. I said, God has not called you to do that. God's Word and God's will always dovetail. They never contradict. So there are some things that are no-brainers, Because God has said specifically what his will and his plan is. Now, sometimes it's not always clear. Uh, You are headed off to college and you got a full scholarship to a school in Michigan and another in Massachusetts. Both are giving you a full ride. Both are equal distance from your home. Which school should I go to? Both are rated on the same level, both top schools. Well, certainly one component of discovering God's will in these areas that are not expressly defined is a verse like Psalm 37.4. If you're coming to the basic discipleship course, I'm going to give you 100 passages that every Christian should memorize, and this is on the list. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. You see that word desires, by the way, in the Greek Old Testament, we call it the Septuagint, because Jews read the Old Testament in Greek at one point because they lost their ability to read Hebrew. It's the same word that we just saw for pleasures in James chapter four. Now, I know some people read a verse like this and they say, you gotta be kidding me. You mean to tell me if I delight myself in the Lord, he is going to give give me my desires. But please understand, in the context, God reveals the emphasis is not on my desires, but on my delight. It's structured that way in Hebrew, but even if you didn't know Hebrew, the context draws it out. Look at the verse right before it. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Look at verse five right after it. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he will do it. So on either side of verse 4 is this admonition to cultivate faithfulness and to commit your way to the Lord. And when you spend your time delighting yourself in the Lord, then the desires that are in your heart are coming from Him. They are originating from Him. So He puts a strong desire in your heart as to the pathway that you should take. And so the desires are not evil, they are not self-centered, they are not selfish, these are desires that come from God. Every pastor has to do a lot of marriage counseling. It's inevitable in our day, in fact, for many people, the entry level to the church, why do you come to CBC? Our home is in a crisis. Rarely a week goes by when I do not hear that. And you get them in there and you say, well, what's the problem? You know, and some of the things I've heard, you know, I mean, we think these are jokes, the way the toothpaste is squeezed or the toilet paper is rolled, but it's not. I've heard them literally in my office. And I begin with, are you delighting yourself in the Lord? Are you personally spending time with the Lord? Because you see, if you're not, then those selfish, self-centered desires are going to come to the top. But when God's delights are your delights, when His will becomes your will, when His Word becomes your will, selfish desires begin to turn into Christ-centered desires. Now go back to James chapter 4. James 4. We've seen the emphasis here is on quarrels and conflicts from within. Now remember, the chapter and verse divisions are not in the original. They're added almost a 1,000 years after the Bible is completed so we could find our way around. But please do not miss the flow of thought. Chapter 3 in verse 1 began with a discussion on the tongue. Then, after the tongue beginning in James 3.13, he moved to earthly wisdom versus heavenly wisdom, which we discovered last time, and now in verse 1, to quarrels and conflicts. James is simply reminding us that an unbridled tongue, that earthly wisdom, when the two are mixed together, what do you have? Quarrels and conflicts. That becomes the spiritual condition of the individual. However through a heart change, when you have a birth from above, and then you begin to feed on the word of God on a consistent basis, everything begins to change and you have more and more harmony in your home and in the church. So the first cause of worldliness is illicit pleasure. Secondly, on your outline, worldliness is rooted in self-centered envy. Worldliness is also rooted in self-centered envy. We read now in verse two, You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Now, the second clause introduces us to envy, which is very, very destructive. And envy and jealousy are evil twins. Jealousy begins with full hands, but it's threatened by the thought of losing something that they possess. Whereas envy starts with empty hands and it's yearning after something that someone else has. It might be a position, it might be prestige, it might be power, it might be some possession. And since he or she is not able to obtain it, what do they do? They fight and they quarrel. Now most of you probably have at least one person in your life that just seems to dog you. You can't make them happy As soon as you slip up even a little bit, instead of them showing you grace, they're all over you like a bad rash. And the problem, sadly, is that their so called uh, criticism of you is often disguised in a phony spirituality. And if you want to see a classic example, turn to Numbers chapter 12. Go to the book of Numbers. If you're new to the Bible, the first book most of you know is Genesis. Exodus, Leviticus, and then go to Numbers, and go to Numbers chapter 12. It's called Bamidar in the Hebrew Bible. They have different titles for their books. They take some of the first words or word that's found in the first verse of the first five books, and that's how they're titled. Remember, uh, book titles aren't inspired any more than chapter and verse divisions. They're there so you could identify the right scroll or where the pastor in our day is asking you to turn to. Now, let me, uh, Bamidar, by the way, means in the wilderness, And so this is a book about the people of Israel in the wilderness. Now, in the Greek translation, they call it Numbers because there's a lot of counting that takes place through this book. Maybe in the wilderness is better because, oh, yeah, I want to read the book that really describes their times of wandering. I go to Numbers, Bamidah. Look at chapter 12 and verse 1. You have a classic problem of envy. We read, then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. So Miriam actually takes the lead. In Hebrew, it's a feminine singular verb. And so in the Young's literal translation, they render it, and Miriam spoke Aaron also against Moses. They're underscoring that Miriam is the one who took the initiative in this little envy fight, and we'll see the consequences are going to reflect accordingly. By the way, I should pause here for a moment because there's a lot of nonsense that has been written about what is actually going on here. You're thinking persons. There have basically been four positions about what it is that she is raising. When it says, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses' wife because of the Cushite woman. Some say that what Moses did was he divorced his wife and he married This Cushite, that Zipporah was out of the picture, and he chooses to marry this woman. Number one, that can't be substantiated anywhere in Scripture. Even the Jewish people, some who can be liberal in their approach to Scripture, recognize that that was never the way their Jewish rabbis understood it. Well, some would say, well, Moses didn't divorce Zipporah. He just married a second woman. He was practicing bigamy. Well, certainly under the old covenant, there are believers like David who had more than one wife. Uh, he actually practiced polygamy, and he was still considered a believer. Under the new covenant, he would not be considered a believer. And that's not to say that you couldn't practice in a monogamous relationship. There are many godly men who only have one wife their whole life. And clearly, I think Moses is in that picture. He underscores in the Torah not only the permanency of marriage, but it's one woman, one man, until death separates them. And so in Exodus chapter 4, we read, So Moses took his wife, not wives. He took his wife and his sons and mounted them on a donkey and returned to the land of Egypt. Some say, well, Zipporah died. And so Moses married again. And that would certainly be permissible. Uh, You remember Moses' life, 40, 40, 40, 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness, 40 years in the wilderness again, this time leading the children of Israel towards the land of promise. Some would say, well, you know, he had been married at least 40 years, and now his wife's dead, and he's 80, and he marries again. Well, I would have a problem with that because remember, this is the man who authors the first five books with all the great leaders, whether it's Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or whoever it is, when a wife dies, they record it, they name it. And so it seems pretty forced to me that all of a sudden this woman walks in the scene, this Cushite woman with no explanation, not even a record that this great woman of God, Zippor had died. So it's somewhat forced. Many, including myself, believe that he's describing the same woman that Zipporah, though she's from the land of Midian, she's also considered a Cushite woman. Let me explain. There are many places in the Bible in which there are two, like there's two Bethlehems in the Bible, and there's two uh, Caesareas in the Bible, and there's there are a whole list of things or two places, and, and some would argue that there's two Cushes, Cush of Ethiopia, or some would say, well, she's called a Cushite because she would look like someone from Cush of Ethiopia. That's possible. We don't definitively know, but we do know what the Midianites look like, that they were a dark-skinned people like the Cushites were, and so you might find that parallel. And you find God making that parallel in two books of the Bible, one Habakkuk and the other is Amos. For instance, in Habakkuk 3.7, there's a Hebrew parallelism here. I saw the tents of Cushion under distress— The ten curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. So here, Cushion is another name for Midian. And so what is he referring to? Skin color. By the way, in the Song of Solomon, chapter 1 and verse 5, he marries a Cushite. And her skin is described as black and beautiful. We have that expression, black is beautiful. Do you believe that, you black people? Someone say amen. Black is beautiful. Amen. We get a few amens. And most white people do too because they're always trying to make their skin darker, right? (laughs) I mean, let's get out there in the sun make it darker. Uh, Well, fourth, Midian here, she's she's just looking for an excuse. She is looking for an excuse as to why Moses is the big shot. And she can't share the same kind of leadership with Aaron. So in essence, she was saying, Moses... Why should you lead us? By the way, he married in the faith because you discover that the people of Midian came from Ketorah. Remember, Abraham was married to Sarah. She finally passed away, and he married again, and he had several children. And the children that come from Ketorah are called the Midianites. So he married within the faith, just like Jacob wanted Isaac. Uh, Abraham wanted Isaac to have a believing wife and so on. And, uh, and, they, and they wanted them to marry within their family. By the family, I mean within certain tribal racial dimensions. Why? Because typically in this day, to marry outside of the family was to marry a raw pagan. And that's where the prohibition is, whether it's in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. It has nothing to do with an interracial marriage. It has everything to do with whether you're marrying a believer versus an unbeliever. And so here's Miriam, and no doubt, as I'll show you in a second, she's saying, well, look, you could have married someone who was more of a kosher Jew, a little more direct through Abraham, who looked more like us. But you married this Cushite, this Midianite who's a whole lot more dark-skinned than we are. So she has this spiritual problem of envy that Moses is in leadership, and now she's drastically looking for a problem and an excuse in which to bring him down. Look at verse 2. And they said, "'Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well?' And the Lord heard it. The problem was theirs. It's not Moses's. Look at verse 3. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. By the way, the liberals, the scholars, the critics of the Bible, who are always attacking the Scripture... They want to attack Mosaic authorship because if you attack Mosaic authorship, then that means Moses didn't write it. They have multiple authors. When Jesus said Moses wrote it, then that's not correct either because they say the writer would never have said this about himself. If Moses is writing this book, Moses never would have said he was more humble than any other person on the face of the earth. In reality, just the opposite is true. His declaration and record of his humility is only something that the Spirit of God would have led him to say and to record for us. That would not be a person's natural inclination. And so God has Moses included here, why, to underscore that envy That they are accusing, that that the envy in their heart is not justified, that Moses is not some arrogant leader, but he is a man called of God. Let's keep reading. Verse 4. Suddenly, the Lord, it's in all caps, Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron and to Miriam, You three come out of the tent of meeting. So the three of them came out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the doorway of the tent, and he called Aaron and Miriam. "'When they had both come forward, he said, "'Hear now my words. "'If there is a prophet among you, "'I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him, in a vision, I shall speak with him in a dream. "'Not so with my servant Moses. "'He is faithful in all my household. "'With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly, "'and not in dark sayings, "'and he beholds the form of the Lord. "'Why then were you not afraid "'to speak against my servant, against Moses?' So the anger of the Lord burned against him, and he departed. But when the cloud had withdrawn from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous, as white as snow. And Aaron turned towards Miriam. Behold, she was leprous. Listen, to grumble against God's leader, Moses, was to grumble against God, and that's what they were doing. And so while God held Aaron also responsible, because Miriam took the lead... She experienced the brunt of the punishment. She experienced leprosy. What's her complaint? This Cushite you married, this Midianite, she's not a full-blooded Jew. She's one of those dark-skinned people. What does God do? He makes her white as snow. I love it. It's almost as if God is saying, You're probably not as white as you think, Miriam. Okay, that's the cause of worldliness. Now, back here in James chapter 4, let's also continue with the consequences of worldliness. He lists two consequences that always inflict a worldly believer. First, worldliness results in unasked prayer. It results in unasked prayer. He says here at the end of verse two, you do not have because you do not ask. Let me start by saying that the more intimate your fellowship with God is, the more you will pray. And the corollary is true. A person out of fellowship, their last thought, instead of their first thought, their last thought is to pray. You know, couples come into my office, they have problems. And I always remind them, look, you don't have any kind of a problem if you know Christ that God can't help you with. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What you need to learn is how God will strengthen you. And one of the first things I I ask them, I'll say, have you as a couple literally, physically, actually gotten on your knees and... And prayed and cried out to God about this problem. I know you've told me you, you've fought about it, you've discussed it with other people, you've discussed it with one another, but have you discussed it together as a couple with God? And 99% of the time, the answer is no. Because you see, worldliness leads to a prayerless life. And when your heart is out of tune, you will not pray. And one of the greatest problems in our day is not unanswered prayer, it is unasked prayer. And it is unasked because the heart is not right with God. Again, he says, you do not have because you do not ask. Audrey and I were in a church in North Carolina. We were serving at Duke University. She was ministering to women. I was ministering to men, newly married. And we went to this Sunday night congregational meeting. And I'm telling you, it was a knockdown, drag-out fight. It was really sad, and I saw people. I, who are these people? I've been coming here for a year. I've never seen some of these people. Oh, they're members. They show up when there's a congregational meeting, and I couldn't have counted 30 people the Wednesday night before at that prayer meeting. Prayerless is a prayerless life. It's a worldly life, and it creates conflict, in the church. So worldliness results in unasked prayer. Secondly, worldliness results in ineffective prayer. It also results in ineffective prayer. You see, James envisions this person saying, now wait a minute, I've prayed with my husband and we are still knocking heads or we've prayed about this decision in our church and we're still filled with fighting and quarrels. And You see, God just isn't answering our prayer. And James would say, you're absolutely right. God did not answer your prayer. In fact, God is not even listening to your prayer because your heart is not right. We say, well, God answers all prayer. Yes, no, or maybe. God doesn't even listen to some prayer the Scripture teaches. We come up with these old trite expressions that many times are half-truths. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. You see, some of the requests that were made in the assembly within the local churches that he is writing to the diaspora were legitimate requests, but the reason they were asking for these legitimate requests came from an illegitimate kind of desire. And so he goes on and he reminds us that when a prayer request is made just simply for your own cause, your own desire, and not for the glory of God, God will say these kinds of things. You adulteresses, verse four, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of God makes himself an enemy of God whoever wishes. The Net Bible says whoever decides. The new King James says whoever wants. The old King James says whoever will be. Actually, the Greek word is Bulama. You say, well, that really blesses me, pastor. Well, let me explain why it's important. Literally, it reads, whoever therefore is minded is a friend of God. Fr- whoever is minded, a friend of the world whoever is minded, bulamai means to be minded, to have a perspective. And there are some people who are worldly minded. They have a worldly perspective. Now, remember, this world system, Ephesians 2 says, is being energized by the prince of the power of the air. Now, when we say people are worldly minded, it's critical that we differentiate between the worldly value system that Satan is energizing as the God of this world from the people of this world. And there's a difference. Let me illustrate. Go to Mark's gospel, Matthew, Mark. It's the second book in the New Testament. Go to Mark chapter 2 for just a moment. Mark chapter 2. Mark 2, let me set the stage here for you. It really unfolds in three scenes, in Mark chapter 2, in verses 13 and 14, Jesus comes to this man, Levi, who is a tax collector. He's also known as Matthew in the Bible. Many Jews had double names, and this man is Levi or Matthew. We're talking about the same person. And as a tax collector, he was not considered, quote, unquote, one of the beautiful people of the day. They were hated. They were rip-off artists. They were despised. And Jesus comes to Levi, and he says, follow me. And he drops his cash register. He leaves everything, and he follows the Lord Jesus. Then we come to scene two in verse 15. And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house, in Levi's house. And many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many of them, and they were following him. So here's the Lord Jesus who knew no sin, who did not sin, and in whom was no sin, and he's dining with tax collectors and sinners. It's a beautiful picture. And if you don't find that beautiful, there's something wrong with you. It tells me your heart is a million miles away from the Lord. Now, notice scene three where I want to give, us, give the focus. Verse 16. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? The point is clear. Since he's eating and drinking with tax collectors, that is sinners, ipso factor, he himself must be a sinner and he cannot be considered a man of God. Verse 17, in hearing this, Jesus said to them, "It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners." Please understand a very important principle, and it is that what Jesus was determined where Jesus was. What Jesus was determined where Jesus was. What is Jesus? He is a physician. He is the savior. Where does a physician spend his time? With sick people. Where does a savior spend his time? With sinners. Now, let me ask you, where do you spend your time? Do you find the lost people of this world with, like they're infectious? Like they've got cooties? Like they're dirty? If that's the way you feel, you're not like Christ. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. You see, in the New Testament, there's a huge difference between separation from sin and separation from sinners. And we live in a day where more and more we do not separate ourselves from sin. We live much like them. A woman not long ago came to join Community Bible Church and I said, well, how'd you get here? She said, well, I had some problems in the church that I came from. My ears kind of perked up like, are we bringing on another problem person? I said, well, what were the problems? She said, well, you know, I go to these Bible studies and people are drinking. And some of them, after the Bible studies, they're sleeping together and I go to church, and it's just like a rock concert. He's, she said, it's one of these secret sensitive churches. And when I would call some of these behaviors into question, they said I was judgmental. And so I came here, and I heard the word preached, and that God has such thing as Absolutes. Listen, when you have an encounter with the grace of God, it changes everything. It's the false teacher, the book of Jude says, that turns the grace of God into sensuality. Paul says, for the grace of God that has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Christ came and he died for all men, but it teaches or instructs us who've received that grace to do what? To deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age. By the way, there are three kinds of patience that Christ could never heal. First, those who don't, do not know him, those who've never heard about him. He can't heal them. How will they call upon him in whom they have not heard? So we are commanded to go and tell. Are you going and telling? Look, if you want to raise spirit-filled children and you're not going and telling, you're not going to do it because that means you're not a spirit-filled person. Your children ought to see some priorities and some things that are important to you. And among things that are important, as Jesus said, follow me and you'll be a fisher of man. Secondly, there are those who, who know about him but refuse to trust him. Why? Because they love the darkness more than they love the light. And third, there are those who will not admit their need for him. Why? Because like the Pharisees, they think they're okay, they're Righteous. When Jesus said, I don't come to save those who are righteous, he was not implying that some are righteous and they therefore don't need a savior. He's just underscoring that some people think they are righteous when in reality the ground is level and we are sinners. And unless we admit we are sinners deserving the judgment of God, Christ can never, ever save us. We must come as bankrupt people, unable to earn this incredible salvation. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Now back here to James chapter 4. When the Apostle James speaks of friendship with the world, he's talking about separation from sin, not separation from sinners. Look again in verse 4, you adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That is some really strong language. He refers to worldly Christians being in a state of hostility towards God, that such a person is choosing to make himself an enemy of God, that friendship with the world is likened to adultery. You see, when you become a Christian... You became, in God's eyes, a member of the bride of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. He is the heavenly bridegroom. And just as a bride separates herself to be chaste and pure and to give herself just to one man as he is to do the same, So when we are born again, we are to separate ourselves from the sinful desires of this world and to give ourselves exclusively to the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you adopt the value system of the world, you are committing spiritual adultery. Now, don't forget the context. We're talking about unasked prayer. In verse 2, an unanswered prayer in verse 3, and the two consequences uh, or the two sources that root this is worldly living, spiritual adultery. Let's suppose living here in our town is a man named John who's married to a young woman named Sally. And they marry one another. They stand at the marriage altar. They say, I commit myself to you in sickness and in health in poverty and wealth to give myself to you and you alone, to no one else until death separates us or Christ returns. Then suppose after they make that commitment, three or four years go down the road and they're arguing. They're not getting along and walls begin to build up. Before you know it, along comes Bill. And Bill is sensitive and he listens to her. And before you know it, she's emotionally attached and before you know it, they're in an adulterous relationship. So Sally comes to her husband John and says, John, I have some things I need. Bill and I wanna go to spend the weekend together in Atlanta, I need the credit card, I need $300 cash and I need the keys to the car. Do you think he's going to underwrite and subsidize her adultery? Not on your life. That's James's point. When we come with a divided heart to the living God, we are asking Him to underwrite our spiritual adultery, and He's not interested. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you might spend it on your own pleasures. You adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility to God? When you are in love with the world and you come to God, give me this or give me that, though it may be a legitimate need, it's asked from a divided heart, and God's not interested. Now, James is not done yet, having given us the cause of worldliness and the consequences of worldliness. Now he gives us the cure for worldliness. Like a good doctor, the apostle James not only analyzes the problem, now he prescribes the cure. Look, if you will, now at verse 5. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. Maybe the more literal reading out in the margin of the NASB would be helpful to you. If you look at the marginal reading, you would render it. The Spirit, which He has made to dwell in us, jealously desires us. Now, if you've been saved, God, the Holy Spirit, desires you. The new King James says He yearns you. The old King James says He lusteth you. Lust, remember, is a neutral term. Sometimes it's used positively, sometimes negatively. It depends on the the context. He doesn't want the world to fill you. The Spirit of God desires you. He jealously desires you. He yearns to fill you and to empower you. Again, that may sound odd to us, that the Spirit of God is jealous, but just as there is an unrighteous anger and a righteous anger, there can be an unrighteous jealousy and a righteous jealousy. And so God Himself refers to Himself as a jealous God in the Ten Commandments. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. In Exodus 32, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. It simply means that God is intolerant of rivals. He wants to have first place in your life. He wants preeminence in your life. He doesn't want any competition. And the Spirit jealously warns us that that's what He wants for you as well as the third member of the Godhead. So notice, He anticipates what someone might think. Someone says, well, all the powers of the world, the flesh, you know, it's everywhere, sin is everywhere, I go to work. They're talking about this illicit relationship, this night at the bar, this, that, the latest filthy movie. It's just everywhere, I can't help myself. It's overwhelming. So he anticipates that, verse six. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, he says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Here in verse six, it says, God gives greater grace. That is greater than the pull of the world. It's not only the saving grace of God, but the sanctifying grace, the greater grace of God. And then in verses 7 through 10, he gives a series of commands that are not unrelated to the context. You might want to circle the last word of verse 6 and the first word of verse 10. Verse 10, humble, circle that word as well, humble yourself in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. And so sandwiched between those two words, between verses six and 10, are a series of five commands that describe the process of a believer experiencing the greater grace of God through humility. First, worldliness is countered by submitting to God. Worldliness is countered by submitting to God. That's the first command, Submit. Notice how verse 7 begins. Submit therefore to God. When I submit to God, I give up my own personal desires and lusts, which is the cause of conflicts and quarrels. I say, I give up, I will not assert my way any longer. By the way, this command parallels Romans 12 and verse one where it says we are to present ourselves to God as a living and holy sacrifice. Of course, he's not talking about an animal because that would be a contradiction of terms because an animal that is sacrificed is dead. He's describing a human, a living sacrifice, someone who keeps on habitually submitting to the living God and that is the key. To answered prayer. Prayer is not trying to get God's will to fit in with yours. It's you trying to fit in with God's will. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Mankind first got into trouble in the Garden of Eden when the first Adam said, Not your will, but my will be done. But thank God for the second Adam who in Gethsemane said, Not my will but your will be done. So first, submission. Worldliness is countered by submitting to God. The second command is found in verse seven. Worldliness is countered by resisting the devil. It's countered by resisting the devil. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Have you ever thought about the devil fleeing from you? For most of us, that's a ridiculous idea. If we can just get him to leave us alone for a little bit, we would be happy. But the Bible says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Now, please understand the order is significant. God first tells us to submit, then he tells us to resist. And there are all kinds of Christians who are trying to resist the devil, even quoting scripture, but they live in defeat. There's no victory because they have not first submitted And there's some area, some corner of their life that they're holding on to, and there's not total submission to the Lord. And so Satan says, I'm not going to flee. I am not going to flee because you've got some unyielded territory, and I'm taking it. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee. The third part of this cure is worldliness is countered by drawing near to God. It's countered by drawing near to God. Look now, if you will, at verse 8, and notice how it instructs us. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Now, this is the positive side of resisting the devil. And when you relish your relationship with God so much, like David in Psalm 27, one thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. Again, in the same breath, he says, When you said, Seek my face, my heart said to you, Your face, O Lord, I shall seek. This is a deliberate action on the part of the believer to draw close to God. And let me say to you this morning if God once seemed close to you and today he seems distant, guess who moved? It was not him. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Many years ago, my youngest son, Jameson, he was just five, he was small. I was laying in the bed with an open Bible, working on a passage, and I said, Jameson, what are you doing in here? I already told you to get in bed. You know, we've already gone through all the hoops, you know, water and this and that. And what, what are you doing in here? He said, Daddy, I just wanted to be close to you. I married him yesterday, hard to believe. I just want to get in the bed with you and under the covers and be near you and Mom. I don't know what kind of a daddy you grew up with. I reached down, pulled him up. He said, Daddy, can I stay here until I fall asleep? I said, you can. I don't know what kind of a dad you had. But we have a heavenly father who wants to be close to you. And if he's not close to you, it's because you are in spiritual adultery. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you, guaranteed. Fourth, worldliness is countered by clean hands and a pure heart by clean hands and a pure heart. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Your hands, your hearts in Scripture symbolize the whole person, the actions of the body as well as the thoughts of the mind. And James is telling us that we cannot come to God with dirty hands. We cannot come to God with a divided heart. For whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It is true that when God saves you. He saves you not just for heaven, but to sanctify you, to begin the shaping process so that while you are here on earth, you become an effective ambassador for Jesus Christ. And when you let go of the world and you hold on to him with both hands, you begin to see the greater grace of God. Jeremiah records a promise from the Lord. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. God doesn't like double-mindedness. He doesn't like half-heartedness. It is disgusting to him. James has already addressed the primary reason our prayers do not get answered. Like the psalmist, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. We say, oh, Lord, I want such and such. I want you to do so and so. And God says, I'm not listening. He doesn't say, if you sin, I will not hear, for we all stumble in many ways. We've already read that in this epistle. But if I cling to, if I hold on to, if I cherish sin, iniquity in my heart, God doesn't hear. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Fifth and finally, Worldliness is countered by a brokenness over sin. It's countered by a brokenness over sin. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and in your gloom, your joy to gloom. He's speaking here of a godly sorrow that leads to real repentance. He is speaking of a, a godly sorrow that wants to bring about real change. He's not talking about the tears of a criminal in front of a judge. He's not talking about some politician or preacher who got caught on tape. He's not talking about crocodile tears and the consequences that bad choices and bad sinful deeds have brought. He's talking about someone who's broken over their sin. And he wants us to know that we need to deal with sin in a serious fashion. He is saying that if you're a friend of the world, then you need to grieve over it. Surely that's not what God has in mind, is it? I mean, we're supposed to get up in the morning and claim our victory and our happy thoughts and claim the healing from the Lord. That's what Pastor Joel would tell you. God says you're to be broken over your sin. You're to grieve over it. What bothers you? When was the last time you were broken over some sin in your life? I'm not saying that you shouldn't have joy or laughter. He's not saying that, but he's simply saying that if you're worldly as a believer and you don't deal with sin in a serious way, then you can never, ever, ever get serious with God. And so he concludes, humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. You know, sometimes we pray, oh God, humble me. And I suppose God might answer that prayer, maybe not in the ways we would prefer, but understand, this is not a prayer request. This is a command. This is not something God does to you. This is something you do before God. Humble yourself. It's an imperative. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. And if we're not willing to do that, God has a way of giving us a Nebuchadnezzar complex. Remember when we studied Daniel? He went on, look at all that I've done. Look at my great kingdom. And God said, why don't you try eating straw for a while and come down to earth? And God can humble us. James is giving us a prescription, a cure for infighting, whether it's in your home, whether it's in the local assembly, for wars, for battles that sever churches that break families apart. He's telling us we need to address the problem of worldliness. We need to see it for what God says it is, spiritual adultery. Now, if you've never met Christ, you can't even begin to, that process of becoming more like him until you're born from above. You can't be born from above until you're willing to own your sin, call it what it is, Change your mind about it, that is, say what God says about it, that it's wrong, it invites the wrath of God, and you flee to the one who is the great physician, not only analyzed the problem, he provided a cure, and he paid for the cure in full with his own precious blood. Come to him today, and he will receive you. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed, wherever you may be, maybe you're here and you have never received Christ. You're not sure if you died in the next minute that heaven is really your home. You think I hope it is. Maybe it is, but I don't really know. Well, God asks you to come in faith. He asks you to believe that what He did on the cross of Calvary and having raised His Son from the dead is sufficient to save you. But you must take God at His word. That's the nature of faith, and God cannot lie. And he promises, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord, speaking of Jesus, you call on Jesus' name, and he said, I will instantly and forever save you. Would you do that? No one can do it for you. Would you say, Lord Jesus, save me? Father, we know we live in an age where some Christians, they have just been more shaped by the world in these days than they have by the word of God, and then there are some who think they're just a worldly Christian and the problem is they've never been converted. They've never shown any of the marks of new life in Christ. But many have slowed that process. As I have been opening your word, you've been opening hearts. And you've put your finger on things in our lives that you want to change. That we might go further and represent the Lord Jesus as a more effective ambassador. I don't know where some people are at today, but I know, Father, that this could be the first day of the rest of their lives. But I don't want them to come to the end of their life having lived decades and a compromised life only to discover that they wasted it. One life will soon be passed. Only what's done for the Lord Jesus will last. Help us to live for him. He is worthy of everything. We ask it, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.